and I was about seven or eight years old. Um, so seeing just streak after streak, every about minute, just a shooting star was just amazing in my eyes. And from that point onward, I was hooked. Astronomy. It's the oldest space science, used for navigation, timekeeping, and more spiritual applications. But where did it come from, and how have we used it to better understand Mars? With the recent opposition and close approach of Mars, what can we learn about it right here from Earth? Do all those space probes eliminate the need to look up at the heavens? And how can someone like you or me get involved? Do we need a telescope? What kind? How can we be a part of Mars exploration from right here on the ground? Learn about oppositions, telescopes, and astronomical history. All this and more on today's episode of the We Martians podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 6 of the We Martians podcast. I'm your host, Jake Robbins. It's been a busy month. Mars just passed its opposition on May 22nd, and the closest approach to Earth is tonight, May 30th. All this astronomical activity has kept me really, really busy, and there's been a lot of great engagement on our online events. Thanks to everyone who has participated so far. If you want to get access to the extra content for this episode, and trust me, there's a lot, uh, be sure to follow us on Facebook. And you can also find us on Twitter at we underscore Martians and Instagram at we Martians. If you are enjoying the podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes, or even better, writing a kind review. It's the easiest way for you to help me and to help others learn about space, Mars, and science. Uh, Spreading the word is kind of the best exposure a podcast can ask for, and it's completely free. We've got an awesome guest on today's episode, and it's our first on-site interview, so at the risk of being brusque, let's get right to it. Long before the age of Martian rovers, orbiting observatories, and rocket ships, humans learned everything they could about space from right here, safely on the ground of Space Station Earth. For centuries, we've peered into the heavens using telescopes, ever increasing in their functionality, and for millennia before that, we used not but our eyes to watch the stars and the planets traverse our sky. Early Babylonians, Egyptians, and Greeks tracked the movements of planets like Mars, watching as every 26 months it seemed to reverse course in the sky, travel backwards for a few weeks, then turn around and continue in its original direction. Thanks to its reddish color, they named it after the various gods of blood, war, strife, like Nurgle, Ares, and Herdesher. For centuries, Mars remained a symbol of violence, even as we began to realize it was not some ominous blood star so much as another planet, not too unlike our own. Early astronomers made headway following Copernicus, who correctly placed the sun at the center of our system rather than the Earth. Johannes Kepler used data from Mars' elliptical orbit to outline the first two laws of planetary motion, and Galileo made the first magnified observations of the red planet using the earliest of telescopes. Huygens made one of the first maps of Mars, and Cassini used it to estimate the size of the solar system. Hall discovered its moons, Schiaparelli made famous canal maps, while Lowell boasted of life and civilization just one planet over. Further astronomers like Pettit, Vandenbosch, and Kuiper learned more about Mars from its temperature and mass to the composition of its atmosphere. And by the time Mariner 4 cruised past Mars in 1967 and returned pictures of its surface, the first ever spacecraft to do so, We knew much about the world already. All of this was thanks to the science of astronomy, a practice which remains important even to this day, not just for professionals, but for amateurs like you or me. 
Astronomical events like oppositions are important for astronomers when observing all planets, but especially Mars, since its distance from us is so dynamic. Mars oppositions happen just once every 26 months, and each opposition grows or dims in brightness following a roughly 15-17 to 17 year pattern. 2016 is the second best opportunity we'll get in a while. It will be beaten by the 2018 opposition, but then not again until the 2030s. If you listen to episode 2, you can learn a lot about Mars' orbital cycle. Spacecraft launch windows are intricately related to oppositions. And so this is a rare but not unheard of opportunity, and I wanted to make sure that you, the listeners, got a chance to take part. Now, I'm not an astronomer myself, so instead I reached out to the local chapter of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada to see if they could help us out. They were kind enough to pair me up with Kyle Daly, the merchandise director, who invited me to a local observatory here in the Greater Vancouver area in Canada where I live. We had a chance to sit down and talk about astronomy, and also look through a telescope that frankly knocks the socks off my own little hobby scope. It was a bit of a chilly night, and I learned perhaps one of the most important astronomy lessons of all. Dress for the weather. So if you hear the rustle of the wind, or the chatter of my teeth, just know that it was because I wanted to get the best interview just for you. We began with a short conversation about Kyle's background and the observatory itself. All right, we're here on site with Kyle Daly from the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada, and he's been kind enough to take me up to the top of Burnaby Mountain at Simon Fraser University to the Trottier Observatory here in Greater Vancouver. Uh, thanks for having me, Kyle. I wanted to say thanks a lot uh, for bringing me here, and also thanks so much for being so flexible with your schedule. We've had some pretty you know, outrageous <laughs> weather here in Vancouver. We don't have the best for astronomy, but uh, we're making do here. So. Oh, of course, yeah. Uh, it was a pretty great April, you know, sunny, it was hot, there was clear skies almost every night, and then all of a sudden, right when we want to actually, you know, look at Mars, oh yeah, it's like, here, have clouds for two weeks, so. Anytime you plan something, it just, Vancouver just throws you a loop. <laughs> exactly, cloudy. yeah, yeah. So, uh, like I'd say, I know you kind of just uh, came at the drop of a hat, so I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I thought maybe we'll just start off, tell me a little bit about yourself, uh, you know, what's your role with the Astronomical Society, and how did you get into astronomy? Of course, um... I've been with the Royal Astronomical Society for about four years. Uh, Actually, my physics professor over at Douglas College introduced me to RASC um, back when I was in first year. I graduated in 2012. And right now, I am the merchandise chair on council of this Vancouver Center. Um, And just astronomy has always been a lifelong passion for me. And I really, where I got started was... I was going on a trip to Nova Scotia to visit my grandparents uh, on my mother's side. And so my mom thought that it would be a neat idea to bring bring a family over to my cousin's grandfather's place uh, out in the middle of the country, about an hour away from Halifax, um, because he built his own little mini observatory over there. Um, and he's just a real astronomy buff. So we brought us over. Um, and it was just a completely dark sky, no lights anywhere. It was just a city in the sky. And that was the night when the Perseid meteor shower was actually showing. And I was about seven or eight years old. Um, so seeing just streak after streak every about minute, just a shooting star was just amazing in my eyes and from that point onward i was hooked this astronomy was for me yeah this was great you know and that's a good point because i know a lot of people who are are, you know grow up in a city they don't 
they don't have that experience unless no, they go no. out there. I kind of have the same thing. My my uh, my wife, uh, she grew up on a farm and it's in the middle of nowhere in oh. Alberta. And the uh, same thing, you can see the Milky Way, you know, naked eye. So I I can totally I totally get that for From sure. Out there, so. yeah, the Milky Way looks just like a dark cloud through the sky, and it's it's great. It's fantastic. Awesome. Mm-hmm. And uh, merchandise chair, so you can give me some sweet shirts or something. Right? Oh, of that- course, <laughs> maybe you know, slide you something under the table. You know, yeah. sounds good. Okay. <laughs> So we're we're standing uh, outside right now. We're at the uh, mm-hmm. the Trotsky Observatory. It's it's gorgeous here. This is a really nice, well done. I, I think it's pretty new, right? So it is. It was built uh, last year, I believe in April last year, and everything on the site has meaning. Like the plants around here, uh, the colors of the plants when they're fully bloomed in the summer, all the colors will represent the colors of the planets. With the observatory itself being like the sun, oh, so wow. all the planets going outward or all the plants, rather, going outward, will represent the planets. So Mercury being closest and uh, Uranus being the last. Um, or Neptune, rather, excuse me. Uh, and they'll just all have colors. And also there's these cement little uh, blocks going along the center here, and they all have colored lights. And each little block represents a element. So going from hydrogen to our right, being the most basic element... Uh, all the way to, I believe, silicon, which is down there. Now, each little element has its own meaning, hydrogen being the most common element in the mm-hmm. universe. And then next is helium, second most common element. And aluminum is there, which is a naturally found um, metal, excuse me, metal in the earth. And silicon being the most used uh, artificial, artificial uh, material, and so on like that. And beside those blocks... On the ground are these little plaques with uh, distances to powers of 10 of in meters. Uh, and each little plaque will have its own little blurb, like say, for example, um, there's 10 to the 0 meters, so that's 1 meter, so about average human height. Okay. And like it'll get smaller, which it'll go down to like human hair or the plank length, which is the smallest measurable length, um, all the way increasing in powers of 10 to the observable universe. It'll have a little blurb on there. Um, cool. We also have just on the sides of the cement walls down uh, down there, just at the end, there's little star charts. So people walking by it, at nighttime, all this is lit up. Um, yeah, I can see there's a lot so, of really yeah. cool colors kind of coming off these things. Exactly. It's- That's the spectrum colors of each of the elements. Okay. So, yeah, the emission spectrum. Um, so when you do a... a- I'm going to just... I might make a video myself, but it's kind of like when you do a spectrography, is that... Spectroscopy, yeah. That's the study of it. We look at these lines, because these lines are essentially the uh, fingerprint of the atom, right? Um, But yeah, just everything here is meeting, and of course, the observatory is here as well. Cool, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, So the the telescope in here, do you know much about that? Like, so... Mm -hmm. I know a little bit. Um, So the telescope itself is a reflecting telescope which means that there's just like a bunch of mirrors in there that reflects light in there. Um, it's about 0.7 meters wide. Uh, I can't make the calculation of how many inches that it's is. It's about uh, 26 inches. Yeah, 26, 27 yeah. inches. Um, and it has a spectrograph on there to do uh, spectroscopy. Okay. Um, but that telescope is also capable of taking astro- um, astrophotos of deep sky objects like galaxies and nebulae and all that sort of thing. Um, and it's all controlled with a computer 
that's in there. Uh, we're also putting some shelves to put some books in there because we also open the dome to the public on certain specific nights. Um, and people, if they book a time, and as long as they have someone who's trained in the telescope, can go in there and do some research and play around with it, as long as you have someone to supervise you and okay. book a time. Yeah. Cool. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So I, I, I know this thing can see all sorts of deep spies, uh, deep sky objects, like you said, nebulae, galaxies, that kind of thing. But I mean, the real reason that I've kind of cornered you out here tonight <laughs> is because there's kind of a special event happening oh, yes. uh, these last couple of weeks, uh, you know, related to Mars. So uh, Mars was at opposition uh, a few days ago. Uh, we're recording this on the 25th. So three days ago, it was at opposition. Mm-hmm. Um, could you maybe explain a little bit about what that means for people who may not know? Of course. Uh, opposition just means the closest uh, distance between Earth and said object, in this case, Mars. Um, because Earth orbits twice for every once of Mars's orbit. So this opposition occurs every two years, or 26 months. Um, but because Mars is slightly has a slightly eccentric orbit, which is like kind of, it's not a perfect circle. Pretty it's more much. like an ovoid or yeah. an ellip- ellipse. Like it's yeah, a right? slight ellipse, right? Um, it kind of var- at opposition, it kind of varies in its distance, depending on what year. So this year, it's particularly close at about 56 million kilometers uh, at its closest. Um, but it's actually going to be super close, relatively. Uh, and I believe, the next one, right? Yeah, the next one, 2018. I think it's in July, right? Yeah. Uh, it's probably going to be about 50, 52 million kilometers. Okay. Something around. So it does vary with its actually farthest opposition. Um, I think a couple, couple oppositions ago. Yeah, I think I was reading mm-hmm. about it as well. It goes in about a 15 to 17 year cycle as, yeah. it, as it goes around, yes. right? So yeah. um, we're coming up. Yeah, 2018 will be the best we get in that cycle. Mm. And then, so this one still means it's still pretty nice. Yeah. Uh, and we can see that right now. We're looking up uh, Mars. is still shining through the, the Vancouver haze here. So that's yeah. uh, that's really exciting. Um, so you mentioned close approach and, approach and opposition. They're about eight days apart this uh, this time around because yep. opposition uh, was twenty second, and then close approach is on the thirtieth. So, and that's just like I said because of the ellipse. Yeah, I know. I've I've had some questions about that where they're trying to do the geometry and they're saying, okay, opposition. They're in a straight line. Isn't that also the closest approach by definition? And it would be if they were yeah. circles, but they're never <laughs> circles, right? Right. Right. Okay. It, it's iffy on that calculation as well. Um, I'm not quite too familiar with all that kind of stuff because I'm more of a, like a general astronomer. Okay. <laughs> but I'm just fascinated with everything right now, right? Okay. Nothing specific. But uh, yeah, it's kind of finicky where they judge opposition because I find it where it's just like uh, when it on its way in, like probably about a month or so, I'd say the opposition is because that's when it's really close. Right. And then it just gets farther away. And right, right, right. Yeah. And then it's gone. So. Okay. Whatever's so, closest. So if, if I'm an astronomer, like, what does opposition mean to me? Like, why do I care about it uh, mm-hmm. from a, a astronomical sense? Yeah, it's... So, again, it's the closest the object is to Earth. So that could mean that uh, it's the biggest it will be in your eyepiece. Um, and it's also the best opportunity to send probes. Now, this is kind of going beyond the uh, astronomer sure. sense of things. Yeah, fun. But, uh, yeah, so it's the perfect time to send rovers, probes, anything to Mars because it's its closest. So you can, like, you can kind of launch your probe in the direction of where Mars will be and yep. let it kind of catch up 
let Mars catch up to the probe. Kind of so thing. that's why two months ago we had the ExoMars launch, right? Yes, exactly. Okay. So it's kind of be kind of leading Mars, and Mars will kind of run into it, kind of thing. Um, and it's again, it's the perfect time to just observe it from the Earth because it's closest. You can see little details. It, it'll be brighter too, right? Yes, it will be brighter, and it will be slightly bigger. Now I've heard the myths on the internet that it'll be as big as the full moon or as bright oh, as the yeah. full moon. It's like, no, no, it's not true. Um, it is just significantly brighter than it you, like it usually is. Yeah. And it's bigger than it usually is, but nowhere near as bright as the full moon or as big. As okay, so, cool. Yeah. So um, I see a gap in the clouds there. I know we were going to try and get into the actual Trottier Observatory, but it looks like there's some real scientists doing some real science in there. And, yes. Uh, so we're going to let them continue to work there. But uh, uh, Kyle was uh, one step ahead of that, and he brought his own telescope as a backup. So mm-hmm. we're good to go there. We're going to take a look now at, uh, at Mars and see what we can see. All right. At this point, Kyle took me over to his telescope that he had set up into the science courtyard of the observatory. We had a narrow window where a cloud gap passed over where Mars was positioned. What I saw was pretty astounding. Okay. Okay, so, so we're, now we're looking at Mars right now? We're looking at Mars. I have it really zoomed in. Uh, so hopefully, now the haze is kind of a problem, but um, should, if you look really hard, you should be able to see a little black um, blur, I guess, or a little, little... Uh, on the bottom of Mars, and then I tried to, uh, like, I looked really hard to see this, but you should see the north uh, ice cap. The polar cap, right? Yeah, the polar cap. Now, since it's really zoomed in, it's really kind of shaky a little bit, too, so try your best. This might focus. Oh, focus, sorry, focus is right here. Okay, so let's take a look here. It's a lot bigger than I get in my telescope, that's for sure. <laughs> well, this eyepiece is actually uh, an adjustable eyepiece, so it's a pretty special one. Oh, wow, look at that. <laughs> yeah, so I can make out, like, um, different, yeah, different albedo features, right? So yeah, I've got, yeah. I can see dark, I can see the, the red, the black, and then I, I can't quite resolve the the actual cap, but I can see the coloration of it. Yeah, like, that's what I saw too, is it was a little bit white, so like, okay, so it's around there somewhere. Um, and it's tilted, so I think um, they're just about at equinox at Mars right now. I think yes. uh, in like a month they hit their, I guess it would be the autumnal equinox. So, yeah, it should be kind of half covered, right? Yes. Wow, that's awesome. You can see the haze at this magnification, though. Wow. Yeah. So if it wasn't hazy, you could probably see a lot more features. Yeah. Uh, so probably, it, it, so. it demonstrates how important the seeing characteristics of, uh, of you know, where you're, where you're at. I knew it had already been a pretty special night, but what happened next made it appear as though I had planned it, which, of course, I absolutely did not. Well, and lucky for us... Oh, is that the space station? That's the ISS. <laughs> it's a fortuitous moment. Yes. Oh. Horizon, horizon, five minutes. Okay, so that's a cool treat, because it is just after midnight Pacific time, which means that in two hours, astronaut Jeff Williams is going to inflate the beam module. Oh. 
Yeah. So they're, they're working up there right now. Okay. Yeah, that's another thing I'm tracking because <laughs> inflatables, I think, are a big Mars technology, right? So mm-hmm. uh, they're turning that on today. Is that another? That's another one as well. <laughs> Slightly dimmer, but, you know, that's another one going over. There's, there's a few thousand pieces of space station up there. Totally different orbit, though. Yes, and probably higher up, too. Space one slower. It's going a little bit slower. A little bit. I can't really tell, so. <laughs> a little bit. And it's gone. Maybe an iridium flare or something? Uh, potentially. There's um, still a little, little late for a flare. That's well, not changing, so. Wow, that's awesome. That's there you great. go. There's <laughs> a couple, couple little snippets You never there. know what you're going to find when you take a telescope out. Exactly, that's exactly. Not knowing what that second satellite was really bugged me, so of course when I got home I had to look it up. Turns out it was Cosmos 1733. The Cosmos designation is something that the Russians and the Soviets before them gave to satellites when they were either test, when they were failed, or if they were top secret. This particular one happened to be a Soviet intelligence satellite launched in 1986. Yeah, when I looked in my... I've just got... I don't have much of a telescope for those little Orion fun scope things. Yeah. And I can... I can see the light, but I can barely even make out a round shape. This is fully visible. So that's what, the opposition will do that as well, right? Because it's going to be in full phase. Yeah, full it's, phase. It's the equivalent of a full moon on a planet, right? Pretty much, yeah. It, I mean, like, a full moon is technically in opposition to the Earth, right? Technically. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, full phase, uh, and it's the brightest and closest it will be in its orbit. And you can really see, like, Mars was the god of war, right? And just by looking at it from here, the color of it, you can see it's just stained with blood. You can really see how, what, uh, the ancient civilizations. Yeah, we, I talked a little bit about that, and I've, I've posted some kind of history stuff on, online, and it's just like, yeah, yeah so it's got the Babylonians and uh, Egyptians and the Greeks all looked at it. We all had a different name for it, but it was oh, always yeah. just whatever God was killing people at the right, time, right? Yeah. So, yeah, that's awesome. Never ceases to no. I need to get a better telescope. That's what I know now. Jeez. Comparing Kyle's telescope to my own kind of got us talking about the different types of equipment that an amateur might use. You know, and telescopes themselves are actually pretty uh, decently priced, at least for like a manual one. Like, there's a s- specific type of telescope called a Dobsoni, yeah. which is pretty much like it's a really it's a reflecting telescope. So again, bunch of mirrors, um, different mount. I think, right? Yeah, yeah it, it the Dobsoni refers to its mount. Um, it's pretty much just a really long tube uh, with a little base on it, pretty much. Um, and the eyepiece is situated like right near the top of the tube. Um, and those telescopes, like a manual one, can go for $200, $200 something, which is relatively cheap in astronomy. Like this, um, this is a computerized one, computerized Celestron, four inches uh, lens size. Um, and this one was about $800. Dobsonians are reflectors are really the best kinds of telescope because with refracting telescope, what refracting does is it bends the light right as it goes through the telescope. Um, and they're usually pretty long. Now they're the cheapest of the telescopes, probably going for two hundred dollars at the maximum. Um, reflectors can essentially like however long it is, the mirrors essentially double 
its length, in a sense, because of what the mirrors do is that the light comes in, reflects off the mirror, back and focuses uh, onto another smaller mirror, and then out through the eyepiece. Okay. Um, so it effectively doubles its uh, doubles its length. And in telescopes, the longer the scope, the better the image, pretty much. Um, but with refracting, it's just a long tube that just bends the light. It doesn't reflect or doesn't do anything. It just bends the light to magnify it. Um, so it, it kind of limits its length, pretty much. At this point, the Vancouver weather started acting up again, and a big patch of clouds passed over right where we were observing. So Kyle and I sat down once more to talk more about why astronomy is important and how someone like you or I could get into it. It's just always so cool to be able to, to see something new for the oh, first time, course. right? I mean, it's you can look at a million different things in the sky, so there's always something uh, new to, to, to see for the first time, so that's, that's yeah. really awesome. That's the first time for me seeing the different... Um, uh, features on Mars, like you saw that little blackish yeah, dark strip. band on the bottom. Yeah, right? I'll have to go and find a chart that shows me where what, it is, so I can yeah. so I can identify it. Right, oh, that'll be great. It. I did look it up. Best guess is we were looking at the Tharsis region with Mare Serenum at the bottom and the North Polar Cap at the top. I feel like I'm imagining how you know. I think of uh, Schiaparelli made its first map, right? That's its oh, thing. Right. And he drew all the canals. That's what he's seeing, right? He's that's seeing what, those yeah. black lines. Right, yeah. And he's drawing canals and, well, not canals. He thought they were he rivers. He thought, they, yeah. But mistranslations. But, um, yeah, so so I have a question that's kind of always bugged me. So, right. I mean, I understand the importance of looking at, at, at objects like this uh, from Earth because mm-hmm. in in a historical sense, it's all we had, right? It was the only way we had access to the heavens. But we've got two rovers, five orbiters, and another on the way at Mars. So we've got a lot of in-situ data just pouring back every day. So why is looking up at the sky this still important? Like, why why bother? Yeah, uh, well, like we just did. Like, we're looking at these new features and getting uh, the public interested in space. Like, we were just, like... It's Mars. We already know what it looks like, and we know what it's made of, and all that sorts of stuff. Uh, but just seeing it through your own eyes, through your own telescope, it's a whole different experience. And it's really good to get the uh, younger generation and just members of the public to just look at something that they haven't seen before um, with with their own eyes because that's just a whole different experience yeah just like we did right now exactly and like i met a lot of people that just they know what pick like know what saturn looks like they know what jupiter looks like but looking at it themselves through a telescope they're just blown away every time so i think it's great to just look at it with your own eyes and you're just like this is a real thing that i'm looking at yeah it's probably there's probably something to be said about how a lot of space fans today probably come into it just via the internet, right? They yeah. they see a video about Curiosity. They you watch a you know a Cosmos episode or yeah. something like that, and they see animations yeah. and you know uh, science fiction interpretations and like, all that. Say sort of thing. three generations ago, the only way you could do that to you know get in it, be a space geek was to go outside and look at it, right? So you go outside and look at it. You know, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's good and, and it's accessible. So that's I think the most important thing. I mean, anyone can do this. Like this is a way that any person can get involved with, oh, with, yeah. uh, with space, right? You don't even need a telescope. You just need to find a dark place and just your eyes, your 
are the best kind of things to look at. So, I mean, maybe besides Mars, I mean, we're looking at Mars tonight, but if, if I'm just any old person and I want to go and, and look at sky, what, what are some other things that I could see? Well, uh, there's plenty of stars and there's great naked eye objects as well. Like the furthest thing our eyes can see is actually the Andromeda Galaxy. Um, it's about four or five million light years away and on a really dark sky. It will appear as a little fuzzy patch uh, in the sky next to the Andromeda uh, constellation. And even looking at uh, like planets and shooting stars as well, it's great. Uh, just to get into stuff, like looking up and just absorbing all of this, uh, all of these information and just getting excited, right? It's great. And if, if they want to, if, you know, if someone wants to get into astronomy and get a telescope, um, mm-hmm. we mentioned, so a, a $200 telescope, $800 telescope, what's a, what's a good beginner price range to get into? Like, what's the barrier to entry? Um, well, to look at, well, for beginners, it's great to be looking at planets because planets are really something that grabs everyone's attention and looking at stars and galaxies, or maybe that, that's one step above okay. beginners, right? So probably for looking at planets, this, the one that I have, which is a four inch Celestron telescope, it's computerized and automated. Um, now the, the, um, automated part is kind of extra. Um, and it's a little bit more expensive when it has a computer aspect. Um, but, uh, and the telescope that I have is usually about $800, which is a little expensive for someone that's just going into astronomy and sure. just for looking at planets and stuff. Um, but even just a pair of binoculars, um, is great, and they start probably at about $60, $70 for really a big pair of uh, binoculars. Like, I have a set that's 15 by 70 pair of binoculars, and those are stargazing uh, binoculars, and those were $70. Um, but, uh, like, just a basic little telescope, like, or even a refractor, is good for just looking at planets because they're nice and close yeah. and they're bright. Um, and those were probably about maybe a hundred dollars for some of the okay, so not that much. Like, yeah, so it's, I mean, it's fine. Yeah, okay, that's mm-hmm. great. So I mean, that's a good thing to do. So and and I'll post some information about uh, some uh, telescope buying guides for for mm-hmm. beginners as well uh, to kind of accompany this. So um, and what about location? So we're at the top of. Well, it's not exactly a mountain, but it's a it's a pretty big hill in the middle of Vancouver. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're in the middle of a city. That's not necessarily the best place. So, what are some no. tips about like what's what's the best place to do astronomy and what's the worst place to do astronomy? Okay, uh, in the middle of the city, worst place. <laughs> um, like I remember, I was walking down Vancouver and just looking up, I could like only see like Jupiter and Saturn. This was what last year or something, uh, and that those are the only two things I could see in Vancouver. Um, and that was with no clouds in the sky and it was like middle of the night still all these lights are on and those are really the only things you see maybe a couple of bright stars um, but if you really want to get a good sky get away from lights because those that glare is going to like destroy your night vision you want your eyes to really adapt and you want your pupils to expand and let all the light in so getting away from lights will reduce uh um, the amount of ambient light that's coming into your eyes. Okay, okay. So, uh, and stars are very dim, so your eyes will want to expand and try and let all that light in. 
so out in the middle of like a farm or just anywhere away from light is a great place. Okay. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, so this is, I mean, this is, this has been a really cool experience for you. So once again, I want to thank you. Um, before we go though, so, uh, you're with the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. Do you want to talk a little bit about what that is and, mm-hmm. and like, you know, what, what's the benefit of becoming a member of, of, of uh, course. RASC? Uh, so RASC is a charitable, uh, association. Um, it was, it's actually a pretty old club. It, the Toronto Center, which is the, the first center pretty much, uh, was founded in 1868 actually. Um, and it didn't expand and get become royal. And that to become a royal club, you need to be recognized by the queen. Mm-hmm. And that was done in 1904. Um, so this is a really old club. And I just, because I was interested in astronomy when I was really young. And I was going, okay, I want to surround myself with some like-minded people. Because, sure. you know, you learn a lot from being with people who've been in astronomy a lot longer than I have, right? So really, I just did a quick Google search and RASC came up. And I kind of looking through and their meetings were were great because they meet up here, which is a relatively close space. I live out in Poco. So coming up here is about 20, 25 minute drive from where I live. Okay. So it was nice and close. Um, and RASC is actually provides a free public lectures pretty much. Um, we hold them every second Thursday of the month at 730. Um, we usually bring in guests from like professors and other astronomers from everywhere pretty much. Uh, out and they're free public lectures and really becoming a member you get um, uh, an observing guide that comes free with uh, your uh, your payment and you also get automatically subscribed to Sky News which is a Canadian magazine you can also sit in on council meetings so you can actually have direct input on where the club will go in the future um, and you can also if there's a vacant spot on council, you can apply to actually become a council member. Okay, so there's kind uh, of a almost like a citizen community can, participation. Exactly, thing right exactly. Um, and just everyone, you're surrounded with like nine like minded people, like I said, and everyone's friends and everyone's willing to help. And just you, we have an atmosphere where you're uh, don't be afraid to ask a question, mm-hmm. right? Because we many other people might have the same question and we love talking about astronomy as well so rask is a great canadian um uh club it's definitely the biggest uh astronomy club out there um and i've been a part of the member or part of the membership for four years and i was a member and then i applied to become a council and that's where i where I'm the merchandise store. Awesome. So yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, maybe I should uh, consider getting a membership. I've, <laughs> well, of course. Uh, of I don't course. have one yet. So, and they've got different chapters all over the country. I think. Yes. Right? Yes. There's 29, uh, 29 centers all over Canada. Okay. Like there's this is the Vancouver Center. Okay. And we frequently meet up at SFU, uh, the Burnaby campus. Um, but uh, there's one in Toronto. There's Halifax, um, Victoria, Sunshine Coast, and just. Lots of others. Like going onto the RAS website, them sh- they have a list of okay, all cool. their centers. So yeah, awesome. Mm-hmm. Are there any other websites or uh, your Twitter account? Anything you want to you want to plug? If you want to, uh, well, we do have a meetup.com. Okay, meetup.com is where we put out all of our events that's happening on RASC. So go into meetup, look for Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. We always post when our free public lectures are, who's coming to speak, and what they're speaking about. 
and any miscellaneous events that we want to do, like Howard Trottier, who is the uh, astronomy and physics professor and the namesake, uh, the namesake of the observatory, uh, he hosts Starry Nights, which is where he opens up the dome for the public to come, and a bunch of our members bring our own telescopes, and we just have one big star party for wow. a few hours. Yeah, and okay. we just observe all night <laughs> okay so I'll, I'll plug those links into the uh the show notes as well and then mm-hmm. uh i'd also have access to that and then i know a lot of my listeners are are american so i'll also have some information about the uh the american equivalent unless you know anything yeah, about no it. i unfortunately i'm not familiar with the american ones because uh, the american it, astronomical yeah. society i think is this called AAS, yes right? I, I believe so yeah that that's the biggest one or the, the one that i've heard of okay uh, yeah and i'll, I'll put yeah. some information in there course, for them as well i'll look it up and then uh mm-hmm. Uh, they have something as well. So that's great. So thanks a lot, Kyle. And, oh, well, thank you very uh, much, Jake. I been, appreciate it. It's been great having you on the show. And uh, thanks for showing me the night sky. This and, was uh, fun. This was great. Yeah. Oh, loved it. I, I've seen Mars in a whole new light. Oh, glad you liked it. Membership costs in the RASU vary by center, but are generally $75 to $100 per year. And there's discounts for both families and youth if you're under 21 or under 25 if you're a post-secondary student. As Kyle mentioned, there's lots of great benefits, including an observing guide, six copies of Sky News Magazine, and the Journal, which is the RASE's publication. Plus, you get access to a bunch of facilities and meetings year-round. If you're in the United States, please check out the American Astronomical Society. It's a little more formal than the RASE. It generally tailors its membership towards those actively studying astronomy, so the dues are a bit higher and so are the requirements. If that's too much for you, a quick internet search might turn up a local club that you can join. If you need help, contact me at info at wemartians.com. I'll see if I can pair you up. That's all we have for today's episode. Once again, if you enjoyed it, please consider reviewing us on iTunes, or if you press for time, just rate us with some stars. You can follow us on Twitter at we underscore Martians, Instagram at wemartians, and Facebook as well. For complete show notes, head over to www.wemartians.com. Until next time on the We Martians podcast, and be sure you head outside and look at Mars soon. Thanks. Thank you.